Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey there, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode was one of the last ones that we recorded at our studio in New York City before the coronavirus sent us all home. Moving forward, we will record our new episodes virtually because we do believe the show must go on. This week's episode features Paige Novick. She is the owner and founder of Paige Novick Fine Jewelry and Lifestyle. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured David Parada. He is the founder and CEO of David Parada Brands. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so happy to be sitting across from Paige Novick. She is the owner and founder of Paige Novick Fine Jewelry and Lifestyle. Thanks for coming here today. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. So um, I have a Paige Novick story. So I think many, many years ago when I was like 23 years old, I worked at a nightlife startup website in um, the Flatiron area of New York City. And I'm pretty sure that like we interviewed Paige or um, so funny something. Like I just remember through. Yeah, that was early days, and chapter one. When I saw your name pop up on our roster for the show, I was so excited. So um, let's go back in time because you didn't start in beauty. And I want everyone to hear your story. So um, your story actually started in fashion. So tell us about that. Sure. Well, I was a French language and literature major studying at the Sorbonne in Paris when a friend asked me on a whim if I could take over his internship at Chanel. Um, we, oui. <laughs> And so I did. And it was I was bitten by the fashion bug. And you Wait, know, can we just press pause on the second? So he had course. an internship in Chanel and he said, oh, Chanel, sorry, can't be here, but I'm going to send my friend instead. Yeah, that was basically what happened, which of course today would never be the case. But back then it was like seamless. And so I said, sure, why not? I showed up and I was, of course, like the lowest level assistant to the assistant, but I did, you know, spend my day alongside Karl Lagerfeld, who spoke seven languages fluently and was like the most intimidating human but I was bitten by the fashion bug. Both my parents were in fashion, so it was kind of in my DNA already. What In what way were they in fashion? My father, who's deceased, was in textiles and later had a home furnishing store, and my mother is a fine jeweler. And sells oh, that's privately. Cool. Yeah, but I was going on a different trajectory. I was, you know, full-on French language literature. I thought I'd work for the UN as an interpreter, but veered off in a different direction. What was that internship like? It was, it was overwhelming. It was really just, when I think back, I mean, the memories are so vivid, just being in that space on Rue Cambon and how opulent, and it was incredibly intimidating and overwhelming, but also unbelievably inspiring. And like, what sort of tasks did you have at that time? Oh, I had to dress the models. <laughs> I had to take out, like, the stockings and make coffee and make copies, all the, you know, stuff that you do. But it didn't matter. I was I would have done anything. You know, it's just there amongst the, the genius. And um, at that time, um, we didn't have the internet and social media, right? right? This was, yeah. like, a completely different world back then. Exactly. Um, how were you able to share your excitement about this job with your friends? I think just the way we used to, you know, on the phone. <laughs> Remember those days when we spoke on the telephone and uh, letters and, 
you know, just in person meeting at a cafe. And I mean, it was just really, really exciting. Did you have a network of friends who were fashion interns in Paris? No, not really, because we were all students and we were all doing our own things. And so it was kind of an anomaly, but it was really amazing. And little did I know that that would inform sort of the rest of my career. Um, I had an internship in advertising, and obviously this is like my day job now. Um, and I actually learned a lot at that place, even though my job was just to make like um, dubs of videos, tapes. Like I yeah. was just like pressing record on <laughs> on a video machine that doesn't even exist anymore. Um, but there were so many lessons I learned there. And one of them was um, never saying no, like finding a way to say yes, even if it's not the client's intended first path. Um, I love that. What, what was something that you learned in the internship that you still... Um, leverage today? Well, one of the things was just really being true to yourself. And, I, you know, Karl Lagerfeld was so such a visionary and so singular. And just being around that energy and that creativity was just inspiring in and of itself. But to your point about not saying no, that's something that's very much a part of my DNA as well, because having no formal design background my training, again, being more academic, I never heard no. Like, I didn't have any preconceived notions of how to design. So I kind of designed from the gut. And, you know, no was not an option. Like, we can do this. Like, there was no reason not to try. Right. I think um, there's so many people in business who are... Um, they they don't they're not even aware of their habit of saying no we're not going to try that no we've tried that before no we're not going to do this no it didn't work last time right there's so many no's always and you know what if you approach things creatively and think outside of the box there are always answers there are always options and always answers you just have to be remain open and fluid and quite honestly get out of your own way right <laughs> that's what I found if I get out of my own way the answer is there we can see that with clients the ones that work in some clients that work in like a more corporate or a classic environment, um, it's so hard for them to say yes because, of course, you've tried it all before, but you didn't try it all exactly the same way. You didn't try it all in exactly the same moment, right? Exactly. So um, I feel like that's what the um, larger strategic organizations really desire is this ability to educate their team that they can say yes and they can try things. It's just so hard for people who are so used to saying no course. It's like a muscle that you have to flex. You know, if you're not used to that, it's very hard if you're used to working within certain parameters. But for me, like, I haven't, I've never met a box. So <laughs> for me, I'd benefit from working a little more inside the box. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. So, um, okay, you had your internship at Chanel. At that moment, you're like, okay, I'm not going to be a translator at the UN anymore. I'm absolutely going to pursue fashion. Well, I actually had to come back to New York because there was like chaos in Paris at the time with bomb threats. So came back to New York thinking that I would go back to Paris to return, to work, to study, take graduate classes. But then while I was home, I was just looking through different um, ads in the newspaper for mag for uh, jobs, and I came across something for hair accessories. And I didn't even really know what that was at the time, but I took the interview just on a whim. And the owner happened to be French, so he loved the fact that I spoke French, didn't care that I had never designed a hair accessory or even knew what it was. And so I got the job. You got the job designing hair accessories? Designing hair <laughs> accessories for a big, multi-brand, you know, massive retailer. I was 24. They made me creative director. And wait, I, wait, wait. You didn't, you didn't know how to design <laughs> hair accessories. You never designed hair accessories. You didn't go to school for designing hair accessories. I didn't accessories. even wear hair accessories. <laughs> but here's a funny story, sidebar. When I lived in Paris, I was 
for a hot minute, a hair accessory model for this company, Alexandre de Paris. So that was my only access to hair accessories, and that was, I guess, enough for him at the time. Well, isn't that amazing what an internship at Chanel can do for you, right? Have, having that work experience right. right on your resume, plus the fact that you spoke French is probably, okay, That was it, and then it the photos, <laughs> done. <laughs> so then I had to teach myself, essentially, and, you know, I... I basically like devoted six months to like spending my morning evenings every moment every breathing moment of my day and night like learning about this product this category and again because I didn't have any formal training I did what I wanted and my first collection was kind of out there but it was it stood out and they liked it and I stayed there for a few years and then decided I wanted to do my own thing and so I took that knowledge and and kind of shifted into my own signature style, and that was when Fru was born. So um, let's go back to this time at um, the first hair accessories place. You're working as a creative director of design. Are there other designers on staff at that point? No, I was the only one. Oh, so you didn't have anybody looking at you being like, that's not how we do it. Well, the owner of the company. (laughs) But I remember his son felt sorry for me, so he trained me like every night until, you know, I kind of got the hang of it and figured it out. And then from there, I just was able to kind of just use my own creativity. They gave me free reign, but there were certain parameters I had to stay within. And that inspired you to create Fru. So what did the name Fru, what inspired that? Well, it was a derivative of Fru-Fru, which was kind of what the association was with hair accessories at the time, frilly and, and you know, poofy and feminine. And I wanted to do something completely minimalist and clean and modern. So I thought Fru is sort of a fun play on that. And so my first collection was matte silver and gold barrettes with uh, nuts and bolts kind of... Um, you know, uh, ingrained in them, engraved in them. And it was really cool and masculine, feminine. And I love to play with that juxtaposition. So I created my own signature style within that category. And where did you sell these? My first order was from Barney's. Oh my gosh, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, very exciting. At the time, my father had a textile company and we took over the back office. And then I had to buy everybody pizza because it was their lunchroom. And it, we just started to expand until I finally got a space in this neighborhood, actually. What was the process of getting the product into Barney's at the time? I mean, it was, again, it was a little bit of a different world. I remember I went to see Judy Collinson, who was the fashion director at the time, and showed her, and they had never seen anything like it. And, you know, it was a hot moment for hair accessories, so they were on board. And um, did you manufacture before you got their PO, or did you wait for their PO to start manufacturing? I think I waited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And were they all made locally? All made locally. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, I mean... The upside of not having the training is, again, you don't have those preconceived notions. The downside is that the learning curve is much greater. So I would say it took me a very long time to really get to the point where I understood the mechanics and, and you know, the intricacies of it. So um, how did you go from the world of accessories, because then you moved on to handbags as well, right, with Fru, into this lifestyle world where... Um, Crystals and fragrance are, are, are part of your life. Well, it was an interesting journey. <clears throat> the handbags became, you know, as hair accessories started to wane as a as a category, I felt that handbags were coming next. And it was pre the it bag. So there was a lot of room for contemporary designers to really just explore different avenues. And so that's where I was in that space. But then 
around the time I got married and had a child, I wanted to take a little break from it. And I just started designing for fun men's bracelets. And then it was picked, they were picked up by Paul Smith. And then John Mayer bought one. And it was featured in People Magazine Best Gift Guide of, you know, 2007. And next thing I knew, I was in business. Wait a minute. So you, were, you weren't even working on this. This was just— It was a project. I did it for my husband. And, you know, it was a fun thing. But I showed it to a friend who was the manager of Paul Smith. And he showed it to the buyer. And next thing I knew, I was in the store, which is my favorite. He's my icon, by the way. Paul Smith and Carl Lagerfeld. So they carry it in the store. All of a sudden, it's a People magazine. And this is not a machine you're moving. You did not have a publicist working on this. This was just... No. I had to, like... <laughs> I had to basically um, enroll friends, family, everyone to, you know, sit in my apartment and help me make them. And it was crazy. I mean, it was off the rails. So I decided, okay, I got to... There's something here. And I started to build the collection. But then the recession hit. And so... I really wanted to go into fine jewelry. That was kind of always something that was in the back of my mind. But it was the economy was not ready for it. So I took all my ideas and I translated them into silver and brass. And it was great timing because people were looking for the wow factor and for not a lot of money. So for costume, they were able to get big statement pieces and, you know, for a fraction of what they would pay for a delicate necklace. So I had really had a moment with this one signature medallion where I took uh, gems, pre- semi-precious gemstones, combined it with brass, did these medallions. It was a real signature, big like statement look. And I would say we we had a very, you know, healthy run at Bergdorf Goodman. I remember like all the team members were wearing them. It was really exciting. But I knew that when the economy rebounded, I wanted to test the waters in fine And so what happened was I felt like I saw costume kind of, because my background also is in fashion forecasting. I forgot to mention I had a brief stint at Cotton Incorporated. Oh, really? Yeah, and worked with the trend director. And so that was kind of in my blood. And so I'm always thinking like a year or two ahead. And so I felt like costume jewelry maybe was just ebbing a little and that the next wave was going to be in fine, but I felt like it was going to be a different iteration of it. People... We're not going to go buy, like, the pearls and the diamond studs and, you know, the classic things. People wanted something. Now that the economy was coming back, it's like they wanted something a little different with a cool factor. That's what, like, my intuition Mm -hmm. said. So I created a 14-karat gold collection, and we were picked up by Saks as one of the— first of the like nouveau design brands where it was a little bit of a hybrid between fashion jewelry and— ultra fine jewelry. So it was fun, everyday personal items that were like day to night, effortless, chic, cool, and well-priced. And so then a lot of other brands jumped on that 14-carat bandwagon. So we decided to be competitive. We were going to move into 18-carat. And so that's where I am today. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the crystals and the whole wellness journey... In parallel to all of this, I am somebody who's always loved alternative practices. I grew up with a mom who, you know, did acupuncture and took me to holistic doctors growing up and went to um, wellness training and all of the things in the 70s that were very, very progressive. That was like her thing. Mm -hmm. And so it was very familiar to me and always inside of me. I'm deeply spiritual, not religious, but very spiritual. And it was bubbling and I knew that it would somehow find its place, but it, I couldn't tell it 
the time what it was. And then I was really, really drawn to meditation. And I started studying about six years ago with a friend who has a meditation studio in L.A., and she took me under her wing and, and trained me, and I became so impassioned by it. And then it made me more mindful. As I started practicing mindfulness in general, I started to pay attention to things. And I was working with all of these colored gemstones. And I noticed that there were certain colors that I was drawn to, certain stones that I was drawn to, and others that I really didn't want anything to do with. And, you know, again, the more mindful you become, the more you start to notice things that maybe you wouldn't have seen before. So it led me to want to explore healing crystals. And much to my surprise, it was not woo-woo at all. <laughs> I was actually hoping it would be. It was more earth science and metaphysics, which I was not thrilled about. But I learned so much that I felt like this is a message that needs to be shared. And essentially what I learned was that the, the magic comes from us. We were all sold a bill of goods, you know, from the hippie movement that told us that crystals are magic. And I think there's a lot of mystery to them. People don't quite understand them, even if they're drawn to them. And so what I learned is that they hold vibrations because they've been under the Earth's surface for thousands of years. And those vibrations will align with our own energy centers, our chakras, to amplify whatever thought we program in them. So that was very empowering because the work comes from you, not the crystals. But the crystals almost act as our assistants, getting us there quicker. So if I um, um, focus on, let's say, joy, and yeah. I'm, I'm actually like teaching my crystal to revibrate re or remember the joy for me. Is, You're programming is, your crystal. Mm -hmm, to um, remind my body on this? Is that, mm -hmm. is that essentially what we're doing? Well, essentially what you're doing is you program your crystal with a thought or intention. And the crystals choose you. That's what I always say. It's If it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. So whatever crystal you're drawn to, chances are there's something about it that you need more of or that you want to call in. And so if you program your crystals by holding crystal, by holding it in your non-dominant hand, and then just imagining or picture, picturing, visualizing whatever it is that you want to you know, bring forth in your life and really like see it and you ask your crystal for help and then you put it down, you've charged it. Then the work comes from you. That your crystal did its job, mm -hmm. done. You mm -hmm. programmed it. Now you have to take action. And that's like a, and for a lot of people that was like new information. And so I started leading workshops and and teaching one-on-one -on -one because it, it, when the power turns from the crystals to an inanimate object to you, it's very different. And then you feel like you're in control, and it's a really interesting process. This is fascinating to me. Well, there's a few things. One, um, just your, as I'm hearing your story, your patterns of willing to educate yourself, right? Like, so you like had to get an education, give yourself an education on hair accessory design, right? right. Like you had to work hard, right? Then you were at a time in your life where you want to learn more about meditation. So you dove into educating yourself there and now crystals, right? And then, you know, it's it seems like there's a pattern of your willingness to just keep evolving. I'm a constant student. I'm, I mean, I haven't even told you the half of it. I'm like a French nerd. I like read every night in French and like study. I, I love it. That's what keeps me going, keeps me alive and evolving and growing because for me, the worst thing is to be static and complacent. You know, I think just the more you can learn, read, and educate yourself, the more you can share your gifts with the world. So, you know, what's 
cool about what you're saying, and I think a lot of our listeners need to hear this, is that you started in one place and you just, you went, you went with the flow, you followed the flow, you followed the trend. And um, just because you wanted to be a fine jewelry designer 15 years ago, you, it, you didn't let that hold you back because you knew that it wasn't the right time. So um, there's a willingness to really just like keep keep moving along, moving forward, but not necessarily the way that you intended. That's, I think we all need a little lesson in that. Well, that's the surrender, mm-hmm. you know, the element of surrender. And very often, you know, we get attached to things that may not be right for us at that time. And that's what I mean when I say getting out of our own way, sort of paying attention to what shows up and what unfolds and recognizing, and that's where the mindfulness comes in, that really is how you can kind of go through life effortlessly and in that flow. Now, that being said, there are plenty of hardships and, you know, crazy stories along the way and bumps in the road, but it's, you know, all part of the journey. Right, but your entrepreneurial journey of being able to say, okay, I'll do this now, and then I'll do this, and then I'll try this, and then I'll evolve to this, like, that's that's really hard for a lot of people to swallow, the willingness to not be um, controlling the outcome, right? right? And, um, like, I don't know what my business is going to be like in five years, and maybe I don't even need to worry about it. I just need to keep moving forward. Right. Yeah, well— Part of it, I think, is I'm a Libra sun sign, Sagittarius rising, and Leo moon. <laughs> it's a little bit unstoppable. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, a friend just said to me earlier, she's like, oh, I can't tame you. <laughs> so I think part of it is in my nature. But uh, yes, I'm definitely a risk taker. Both of my parents were as well, as long as it's, you know, they're calculated right, risks. Right, right. So, um, okay, so we, you learned about crystals, and then you decide to turn that into something sellable. Right. Well, this is a really interesting part because at this time, I felt like these two worlds were so separate. Like here Mm -hmm. I was on this, you know, treadmill of just, you know, producing jewelry and selling it to the retailers when the business model had changed and much of it had become consignment and it was much harder for designers to actually make money. Right. So, But I couldn't get off of the wheel. I couldn't get unstuck. And then sometimes they say, you know, when you're unable to unstuck yourself, the universe will remove an obstacle for you and they'll take care of it. And so what happened to me was like this gift, you know, wrapped in mud, as they say, my jewelry was confiscated at French Customs by with an agent who didn't have paperwork, and it was crazy. When you say my jewelry was confiscated, you mean like everything that you owned that you were trying to sell? Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. My collection uh-huh. was en route to um, London from Paris after having done a trade show. It was with an agent who was young and not experienced and didn't have paperwork, and he was stopped at Customs. And they, did, they thought it was contraband because there was no paperwork with it. So, P.S., the jewelry was confiscated for six months, 80% of my collection. Wow. Well, if that wasn't a sign from the universe that there is something else bigger here that I had to look at. So after having like a total meltdown, I recovered. Wait, what did a meltdown look like for you? Oh. Is it like cursing? Is it crying? Is it like days, sleepless nights? Like what is... All of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not... I wasn't like out of control screaming. That's not my style, but I was... I was really depressed. Mm -hmm. I was sad. I was anxious. I was panicked. I was just all of those emotions. So, like, how much money worth of jewelry was gone? Uh, $250,000. Oh, my God. That's so much. Yeah. 
And once I did everything I possibly could, including going to Paris twice to take care of it, I, I spoke with this tarot card reader at the time who said to me, okay, it's coming back February 1st. And it was now early December. He's like, let go of it. Figure out your next chapter. Just don't think about it because it's coming back. We can't do anything now. I had done everything. Mm -hmm. So I let go. And then I met somebody who wanted to collaborate on an essential loyal collection with Gemstones. And Gem Story was born. And that wouldn't have happened if the other thing were there because I would have been so focused on that. So the obstacle had to be removed. So by the time it came back, on February 1st, really? by the way, yes, amazing tarot card reader named Anthony at Namaste Bookstore. <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, I had a different relationship with it. I wasn't attached to it. And that was the key. It was I really learned about detachment. And so I wasn't attached to it. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? I don't need 200 pieces in my collection. Maybe I need 50. And so I reduced my collection. I reduced the number of SKUs and the retailers that I worked with. I did what I wanted, the pieces that really, you know, resonated with me and were reflective of my style and iconic. Everything else we got rid of off price. And then I had the room mentally and physically to create this other micro brand, which has taken off and has a life of its own now. So you said you went to the tarot card reader, you um, you let the universe take control of getting their products back by February 1st. Um, and you met someone who wanted to make essential oils with gemstones. So like, where did this person well, appear? I, I met somebody who had their own personal care line, and I approached them. Oh, so okay. I didn't, and because I knew I wanted to do something to marry these two mm -hmm. worlds because they were so separate. So, for example, like I was, do, you know, doing the jewelry, designing it, selling it, and then I was teaching mindfulness classes at my son's school to the fifth grade. There were, and I was like, I have these two completely different lives. And so the oils with the gemstones inside were a way for me to synthesize these two, you know, modalities. And what I learned through my own studies is that the act of anointing yourself and adorning yourself is a sacred act of self-recognition. And I realized that they're not so disconnected, actually, because I adorn and I anoint. Mm -hmm. So the um, the essential oils, um, they, they sit in the gemstones. So how do you... Are these charged stones? Like, tell me about the process of creating these. Well, the process... The stones are charged before we... It soak them in the oils. But very often, people who create essential oils on their own will soak the uh, oils and stones just to absorb their energy and their power. And so it's really beautiful. But I call this oils multisensory because, well, first of all, they speak to all the senses. But then the multisensory element are the ones that we can't, like, define. You know, not the smell, hearing, you know, taste touch, sound, the other ones, like the, you know, when you're kind of operating on the fourth dimension or you have that intuitive sense or you're, something is, you know, you have a prescient feeling about something or um, clairsentience, like all of those things are multisensory. They're the ones you can't define. So we want these oils to really speak to that, not just being about the five senses that we all know about. So um, with the oils, am I going to be drawn to one in a similar way that the crystal chooses me? Definitely. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, I have some for you to choose oh, cool. from today. Oh, um, we, let's yeah. do that. We can do that as a little video um, thing after this. Because um, when you said that, 
um, I thought about Harry Potter and the the wand chooses the wizard. Yes, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I read all the books with my son. Right, so um, I love I love surrendering to the world. Like it's helped me so much because I wanted to control everything for so many years. We all do. Felt like out of control because mm-hmm. of it. Um, and I really have so much more fun going with the flow and just um, believing and trusting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited about this. That's so nice to hear. It's so, it's kind of, you know, counterintuitive, but the minute we give up control, that's when we actually have control <laughs> right. of our lives. So now you're in the world of wellness, which um, I wonder is the process of retailers and distribution similar to that as, of jewelry? Yeah, it's definitely similar. The concept is similar. You know, I think running a business, once you've you've run a business for as long as I have, you kind of, and have done everything, It it's, you know, it's not as much of a learning curve to go into a different category. And uh, you've been so, um, I mean, and lucky is not the right word. You, you sought out like really the best retailers through your career, right? The list that you just gave us is so impressive. Um, what are your goals when it comes to the the oils? Is that something that you'd like to see in stores, the way that you were able to see your jewelry in stores? Well, I would love to, you know, we're working on something new right now. And so the idea is to like constantly evolve it. And really, I think it's the retail world is so different now when it comes to wellness because stores that didn't necessarily um, really display anything in that category or now have complete departments devoted to it. So I think it's a really different world. And again, I'm open to what shows up and what's the right fit. Like, I don't want to force something. Right. But I'm sure you have dreams, right? So like when you daydream, I do a lot of daydreaming about my business. When you daydream, um, where do you see the wellness aspects of your business going? Well, my idea is really for people to turn routine into ritual. That's what our message is. And the most impact we can have and the most number of people for me would be the best because I feel like I was put here to love, create, and share. And if I could do that through these two modalities, then I would be very happy. Well, Paige, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. It's so great to hear your name and see your face again. Likewise. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Paige. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.